Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, can I get a latte? Latte? Sure. You're going to sit down with this here and take it to go. You know what's interesting? The other day I was walking in my neighborhood and I saw a black elderly gentleman that I hadn't seen in a couple months and he literally, his eyes flew open and he said, You're still here! And I went, Yeah. And you're still here. Things have changed, haven't they? And we were like, Yeah. Black folks are disappearing. I'm not ready to sell. I am ready to sell yet, and I need them to leave me alone. Flyers, you know, stuffed in the mailbox. As soon as I see we buy houses, I throw it right in the garbage. Real estate, that's like the only way out of poverty to, to reach real wealth. When he bought it, there was still one or two tenants living in the building. Our agreement on the lease was that I will get it completely vacant, and that's how I got it. I live in bed I moved there four years ago with, like, lots of other white people. <laughs> and um, as a white person, I don't know what my white privilege is. You know, I, that's, that's part of it, right? It's ignorance. It's about not knowing the benefits that I have because I'm white. And, 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 and this neighborhood, I was in there 72 and a half years, and I love the neighborhood, the people, and the stink of it. I love it all, and I'm not going nowhere. You can't go anywhere. I ain't going nowhere. I'm not going nowhere. Gentrification is obviously a very um, hot potato type of word. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. You know what we really mean when we talk about gentrification? Money. And when the people who handle that money, money they loan or money they spend to put up buildings or money they move around to broker deals, when they try to give you an idea of how much is in play right now, They use words like tsunami and tidal wave. I'm Kai Wright. I'm an editor at The Nation magazine, and I'm partnering with my colleagues at WNYC to try and understand this moment. And there are a range of opinions on what's happening. What we don't talk about, actually, is race. Racism and systemic racism. My understanding is that that's what gentrification is, is when a neighborhood becomes valuable. And what makes that valuable is when white people decide that they want to live there or when wealth comes to the neighborhood. And most of the time, the people who have the wealth are white people. It's not the same everywhere. I mean, because it changes from neighborhood to neighborhood and block to block. So, you know, gentrification is a systemic phenomenon driven by global capital, and it has uh, its own characteristic in every single block, in every single apartment building, in every single city. And to me, uh, gentrification right now in New York City, to me, that's inevitable. But it doesn't mean it will always be, and it doesn't mean that it can't be changed or adjusted or tempered by community activism and by political decision-making. That was Rebecca Carroll, D.W. Gibson, and Jim O'Grady. And as you can see, there's a lot to talk about. And we're going to try to cover it all over the next several weeks, because this process is radically reshaping the city. In Brooklyn, which has always been a place where striving migrants from around the world could put down roots and claw their way toward the middle class, rents in some neighborhoods here have doubled and tripled in recent years. But it's not just here. Oakland. Oakland is now the fifth most expensive rental market in the country. And as Rebecca pointed out, it's not just about real estate. There's something happening in so many Black and Latino neighborhoods. 
As the national economy has inched its way through a recovery, young professionals with money to spend and the developers who cater to them have revived their interest in cities, where people who are still struggling are feeling what can only be described as a push. So, here in New York, Mayor Bill de Blasio, a progressive Democrat who rode into office on the back of outrage over inequality, he says he has a plan for controlling all of this change, a way to build more affordable housing without displacing people in the process. Well, maybe. But people are deeply suspicious. And we're going to try to understand why. Even the most optimistic real estate pros, and we have talked to them, didn't see gentrification moving so quickly across central Brooklyn. And neither did the waves of suddenly priced out residents. We've talked to them, too. Well, back in the days, it was everybody. We had all my aunt, my mother's sisters, everybody lived in Bedside. Meet Monica Bailey. She's lived for more than 30 years in the heart of this neighborhood. Bedside is one of the nation's most historic black communities, which is why I moved here a little more than a decade ago. Monica lived in a three-story building on Putnam Avenue, not far from my house. Yes, that's where I lived. Monica, who's in her 50s, pointed to the second-floor apartment where she lived with her mother. So I asked her to tell me why she left the building after so many years. So what happened? Okay, so we can keep on walking, so this is I good. Know, you don't want to linger in front of that. That's okay. The story involves a fight between Monica and the children of the couple who owned the building, so that's why she didn't want to hang out on the sidewalk in front of it. So what happened was um, their parents, the mom, passed away like maybe four years ago. She was the person that took care of everything, all the bills, everything. Her husband, he worked, but he was retired. He was the working man and gave money to the wife to take care of everything. When she passed away, he was kind of lost. And they have their four four children, and they're grown. The short of it is that just before the father died, he signed a contract to sell the house to a Brooklyn developer who wanted it cleared out. That meant Monica had to go which put her among the growing number of Brooklynites suddenly forced to hunt for affordable housing and facing the likelihood they won't find it. It has changed. Like all these buildings here, people lived in these. And they moved them out. And these was the... those are empty right now. That's true. They were all low-income houses. They were all low-income. They took all the poor folks out of here, renovating it, putting new doors on it charging for one bedroom. They're charging anywhere from 19 to 21. Who's they? Who's buying Brooklyn? First up today, reporter Jim O'Grady introduces us to the first wave. The prospectors who go out looking for properties and the developers who buy them. I'm asking you, you're not answering my question. And Lincoln, how much truck did he port today? One truck? One is one cement truck? That's the voice of a Brooklyn developer. We've been asking a lot of developers for interviews, and most said, nope, not doing it. And, you know, that's not surprising. Their business is almost inherently controversial. So it's like a habit to turn away questions from the press. But not this developer, who we're calling Isaac, which is not his real name, because that's the only way he'd agree to talk to us. Isaac invites me to his office in South Williamsburg to talk real estate. But when I get there, he isn't ready. So he sits me in a chair beside his desk while he ties up a few loose ends. Don't talk to them. Don't even talk to them anymore. Just work and that's it. Nick, you're too afraid. Listen, listen, I'm going to go there. I don't care. Take the fence, move it up to the property line, and just start to excavate. 
From what I could tell, a neighbor was complaining to the city about Isaac's construction site in Prospect Lefferts Gardens. Isaac is developing eight new buildings right now in Kensington, Crown Heights, Flatbush, all in central Brooklyn. The buildings have from six to 60 apartments, and that makes him a small but active player in Brooklyn real estate. Okay, 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 listen, okay, so listen. Isaac's few loose ends turn out to be 25 minutes of ferocious multitasking. Emails, phone calls, consultations with his secretary. Eventually, I figure out that planting me in the eye of his deal-making storm and making me wait, that's the point. Isaac is a busy man, and he wants you to know it. Don't go anywhere. Give me a second. I know Isaac because he was my landlord not too long ago when I lived in a four-story building in Clinton Hill. The building was plain-looking, nothing special, but it was surrounded by beautiful brownstones that were shaded by London plane trees. Real estate guys will tell you, buy the ugly duckling building on a good-looking block. You pay less and you get the classy surroundings for free. That's what Isaac did in 2011. At a time, the building was such an eyesore on the block, so deteriorated condition. Isaac's engineer shored up the building's structural beams. Then he got renovated all seven apartments. New kitchens, new bathrooms, new balconies. And in less than a year, Isaac had the apartments renting at Clinton Hills market rate, which I can tell you is a good deal for landlords. My studio apartment, which a lazy cat could stroll across in like 15 seconds, that's how small it was. That apartment went for $1,900 in 2014. After I moved... Isaac raised the price. That is correct. He says the investment in the building is paying off because it's Brooklyn. Now I will note that Isaac is Jewish. And, you know, if you're a longtime New Yorker, you know there's a long history of conflict in Brooklyn between Jewish developers and the black neighborhoods where they've traditionally worked. But the developers in Brooklyn today are from everywhere. Real estate pros will tell you at their conferences and in private conversation Brooklyn rivals Manhattan as a place for deals these days, and that all kinds of people from all over the world, from the civic-minded to the unsavory, are rushing in. Especially when the market is so hot. How would you describe how hot this market is? Uh, I would keep my vocabulary simple, hot. It's hot. It's gotten to the point that real estate pros have begun to use Brooklyn as a synonym for gentrified neighborhood. Like, here's Kanal Chathani, vice president of an investment group called Achilles U.S. He's speaking at a conference called the Brooklyn Real Estate Summit. Internationally, we, we own in London, Paris, uh, Toronto, Montreal, and they all have their own little Brooklyn where the arts and people want to live because it's cool. The median price of a home in Brooklyn is now $700,000. The median income per household is $46,000. So you'd have to use all of that income, all of it, to buy at that price and pay that mortgage. That makes Brooklyn the least affordable housing market in the United States. And, you know, renting's no better. If you remember Monica Bailey, who we heard at the top, and her estimate of the going rent in bed For one bedroom, they're charging anywhere from 19 to 21 Bingo. The average price for a one-bedroom in bed is $2,000. That's one reason Isaac sticks to the rental market. But how does he find his deals? The kind of deals that save old structures, 
but raise the rent. That remake a city, lot by lot. We'll let you know after this break. Okay, here's a question. How has race or skin color played a role, for better or for worse, in where you live or affected your ability to sign a lease or to get a mortgage? Call us at 1-646-783-9692 or write us at wnyc.tumblr.com. So we're talking about speculators and how they hunt down and snap up properties. Some developers use old-fashioned shoe leather. They scout neighborhoods by walking around, checking out the buildings, chatting up the locals. They pay old-timers for tips about who among their neighbors might want to sell. Almost every block has someone who hears things first, how this one wants to retire and move down south, how that one died, and now her children are looking to cash out on the property. I asked Isaac what kind of scouting technique he used. I don't have any scouts. I don't send out any scouts. But people know out there that I am from searching the Internet, from online, from mouth to ear. People keep calling me on a daily basis that I want to share with me a property which is on sale. If I would buy it, they would think it would be a good idea. So once you're out there, the people with good deals will automatically run after you. Who are these people? Are they lawyers or, or property they're, owners? They're, they're, no, they're brokers. Mostly brokers, flippers, not property owners, and not lawyers. But not the traditional broker with a license who works for an established firm and shows listings. Isaac is describing lone wolf types who work mouth to ear. No paper trail that way introducing buyers to property in their price range. And if the deal works out, they get paid. I would call a matchmaker. Matchmakers? Because those who know me and have seen what I bought before would right away be able to identify what I would buy. Uh, In a way, I see them as being much more successful than professional real estate brokerage firms. These people, their success rate is much more than those who are in an office. Wow. So, Jim, that means that all of these flyers I see all over Brooklyn, the I'm looking for houses, I'll pay you cash, call this number, those are all circulated by these matchmakers that Isaac's talking about. Yes, some of them. Some of these guys are out to buy and some are out to broker a deal without a broker's license for an under-the-table fee. Which, that's illegal, by the way, right? You can't do that in New York. It is, but, you know, it happens all the time. All right, so Isaac, he got the building in Clinton Hill through which one of these kinds of matchmakers, the illegal under-the-table kind or somebody who sold it to him? The flipping kind. So in this case, a guy named Patrick Mullings buys the building at foreclosure for $526,000. And then six months later, Mullings does the, you know, the mouth-to-ear with (laughs) Isaac, and Isaac buys the building for $800,000. He seems to be more flipping, like he sits in the courts where there are foreclosures or short sales. I'm not good at that. And he identifies good properties where he can buy below market value. So Patrick Mullings made a good penny on this below market value that he found. And were there people living in the building at the time? There were people living in the building. And I need to say that I did try to contact Patrick Mullings. And he texted me a couple of times, but he wouldn't talk on tape And he said by text that the real estate market in Brooklyn is fierce and he wants to, quote, keep his strategies and techniques private. So Isaac has to renovate the building and that means people have to go. So how do they get out? 
That is Mullings' job, and we don't know how he did it with this building, but we know from court documents that Mullings once owned a building in Bushwick, and before flipping it, he evicted those tenants. So Isaac made sure that with the building in Clinton Hill, he, Isaac, would not be the one to deal with the tenants. Our agreement on the lease was that I will get it completely vacant, and that's how I got it. So Isaac doesn't do the evicting, but... Do you, do you think it bothers him? Do you think it really bothers him that people are getting kicked out of their house? Mm, not so much, because like a lot of these developers that you and I spoke to, he says he's improving the city. Look, it's no secret that areas are changing, and they're changing for the better. But I think it's good for Brooklyn, and it's good for the people who live there, who live there for the past 40 years. He says gentrification brings diversity to poor neighborhoods. Income diversity. (laughs) And that is good for those places because in his words, that means less crime, more shops. More stores, more services. And he says there are city programs like rent regulation and even the mayor's new zoning plan that keep a good balance between affordable housing and what he calls non-affordable housing. The best interest to serve all people of Brooklyn or New York City, regardless of race, color, is to have a mixture of the better people living in combination or in the same block, the same building, as low-income people. And see, here's the thing. It's stuff like that that makes this a hard conversation because when you hear phrases like the better people, it sounds like pretty thinly veiled racism to me. It's true. People do cringe when they hear a phrase like the better people. People are cringing right now all over Brooklyn. Imagine gentrification is a person, and you meet him at a cocktail party, and he's a little tipsy, and he starts saying, hey, man, listen, if you can afford to pay the higher rent, that does make you better. And if your area improves and your rent goes up and maybe you get evicted, just move to a cheaper neighborhood. That guy, Mr. Gentrification, if he was real and went to actual parties in Brooklyn, he would not be popular right now. But Isaac is also describing a pretty major school of thought among urban planners, that neighborhoods are more vital when the people in them earn a variety of incomes. Mayor de Blasio definitely thinks so. He's baked that idea into his big rezoning plan, which sets aside affordable housing not just for poor people, but for middle-class people too. And that mixes them together. Okay, so let's give this theory a reality check by hopping on the C-train and taking it four stops from Clinton Hill to Bed-Stuy and check in on Monica Bailey. There's a new type place somebody told me about right up here on Lewis and Halsey. I will try them out because I have an international tongue and I like to eat food and I love to drink cocktails. So She's got her cocktail spot and over here is the corner store and the laundromat and the supermarket. And it's all within six blocks and her neighbors all know her. Hey, how you doing? And that's what happens when you've lived in a place for 30 years. All right. But one day in 2014, a man stopped her in the hallway outside her apartment. Some guy she'd never even met. And he told her she had to move. The man identified himself as Danny Ben and he was claiming to be the new owner. I said, did you close on it yet? If you ain't closed on it, we don't have no conversation. He had just signed a contract with the Felders to buy the building for $725,000. So I told him, I said, this is the deal. I'm not moving. He said, well, I came to offer you some money. If you move by this certain amount of time, 
I'm going to give you $5,000. I said, you are out of your mind. You have felt and bumped your head. And that's when the struggle began. A building with a tenant was in contract to sell to a buyer who wanted it empty. It was June of 2014. Monica's rent for the two-bedroom apartment, which she was sharing with her mom, was $875 a month. They had no lease because over the years, they'd become friends with the parents, Frankie and Rudell Felder. The Felders lived above the Baileys on the third floor. It was one of those arrangements where the Felders barely raised the rent, and Monica didn't complain that her stove was like 100 years old. But now, the children wanted her out. And Kai, this is when Monica turned to her neighbor, Cyrus Smith, for help. Smith is a longtime Bed-Stuy guy who works for a nonprofit community group. This was a really... You know, like a bizarre set of circumstances where from the outside, it just didn't make sense. What didn't make sense to Smith was how abruptly the rupture occurred between the Felder family and Monica. But I think because she knows the family, her tolerance of her patience was a little higher than the people on the outside. So this is a sensitive subject. Smith says money issues and addiction issues in the family made things even harder. Monica would not comment on that. And we tried very hard to reach the Felder children to get their side of the story. We wanted to know what they thought about the contract and hear their version of how they dealt with Monica. We called several times, and we went to the building, and we knocked on the door, but got no answer. Anyway, the point Cyrus Smith is making is that over 30 years, Monica's rent basically paid the mortgage. And sometimes Monica would cover a heating or electric bill for the house. And after all of that, she felt like she deserved some time to find another place in Bed-Stuy. You kind of expect that courtesy because she extended courtesies to that family. Yeah, but the family was letting the buyer, Danny Ben, take the lead. I talked to him by phone a couple of times, and he referred me to public documents for information about 826 Putnam Avenue. But he would only comment sparingly about his dealings with Monica. Monica says... He began to threaten her. He said, I will have you evicted and you out on the street and you won't get nothing. That's why she called Cyrus Smith, who says the first thing Danny Ben and his colleagues did was size up Monica and her mom to figure out how to pressure them. They asked me leading questions, you know, like, well, who else lives here? Are you married? Um, do you have brothers? You know, I like, try to see what sort of male presence is there and then also what type of male presence. Monica says Ben texted and called her a lot and even knocked on her door at night, always with the same message, get out. Ben denies harassing Monica, but Cyrus says he was bullying her. So Cyrus and a friend paid a visit to Ben's office in Crown Heights. We physically had to go to their office and let them know that we know who they are, we know what your license plate is, and you know, like if you use aggressive behavior, uh, we're going to respond, we're going to give it to you the same way you give it to us. Message received. Monica says Ben's harassment stopped after that. But then the electricity went out. Let me tell you what the son did, the one that's supposed to be in charge. He called Con Ed and said, you can cut the electricity off. I went down to Con Ed. I said, excuse me, do y'all just let anybody cut off anybody? They said, we made a mistake. So she got her electricity back. And then the heat and hot water went out. I went to the precinct. First of all, when I didn't have the water, because it's illegal, I had to go to the precinct. The cops had to come. I did everything on record. We checked. It's true. During the very cold months of early 2015, the city received several complaints about no heat and no hot water at 826 Putnam Avenue. Monica says one of the Felder children was blunt with her. 
because he said, well, you got to get out. He don't want to buy this house until you move. In other words, the buyer wanted the building empty before taking possession, just as Isaac did with the building in Clinton Hill. Monica sent her mother down south to live with family, but Monica stayed and began to search for a place she could afford, something below market rate in bed I refuse to be moved out of my place, or where I feel comfortable, where I live, where I know people's name, where people know my name, where we look out for each other. Monica works two jobs. She's the manager of a security company, and she wrangles celebrities and the public at Radio City Music Hall. I have a great personality. I make people feel comfortable. You know, I have a teaching background. I can do everything but fly a plane, let me tell you. But in this time in our world, you better know how to do a lot of things, baby. (laughs) One of her neighbors offered to rent her an apartment in his building. But he's older, and his children are in line to inherit the building when he dies. And Monica did not want to go through that again. I had to find a place where that I knew I wasn't leaving for a while. So what about this place here? Let me tell you about this place. We're standing outside a really handsome four-story apartment house on Hancock Street. So this building is, as you can see, it was it's a renovated building, but it's owned by the church next door. There are different incomes in this building. It's only three blocks from her old place. And it ain't what you know is who you know. And I'll just leave it like that. So Monica persisted, and she worked really hard to find an apartment she could afford. And she put up with a lot, but... In the end, she knew somebody, which is a very New York way to land a deal. And again, Danny Ben claims he never harassed Monica and that Monica accepted $2,000 from him, which she confirms. And the sale of 826 Putnam is still in limbo. Or to be precise, it's a lawsuit grinding its way through Brooklyn Supreme Court. Ben's company is suing the Felder family for not following through on the contract of sale. The Felder children claim the contract is not valid. Either way, the transfer of assets between generations is entangled in a dispute, which we're seeing repeatedly in our reporting on homeownership in a very hot Brooklyn real estate market. In the meantime, the value of 826 Putnam Avenue keeps going up. A broker from the Corcoran Real Estate Agency told me that if she had the account, she could pull off a sale for at least a million dollars. And then she sighed because she wanted that deal. But Monica, she doesn't care. Nine months after she was told to leave her home of more than 30 years, Monica Bailey got to stay in good old Bedford-Stuyvesant in affordable housing. And that's the holy grail that Mayor Bill de Blasio says he'll be bringing to the next stop on the gentrification subway line, East New York. This is a Euclid Avenue bound C local train. The next stop is Broadway Junction. So why are people marching in the streets against de Blasio's affordable housing plan and speaking out at public hearings against rezoning? We're here, and y'all don't want to even recognize us, all right? Half of the population in our neighborhood is gone because they cannot afford it. Find out next week when There Goes the Neighborhood heads to East New York. There Goes the Neighborhood is a production of WNYC Studios and The Nation magazine. It's recorded and mixed by the fabulous Casey Means with additional technical love and attention from Bill Moss. Our associate producer and juggler par excellence is John Asante. 
Sean Carlson masterfully dug through the records and transactions to find the deeds. The mighty Terrence Blanchard recorded our theme music. Thanks to our digital team, including Lee Hill, Delaney Simmons, Frank Roberts, and Annie Shields. All Hands on Deck reported and produced this episode. Rebecca Carroll and D.W. Gibson and Jim O'Grady and myself. Karen Frillman is our editor and executive producer. Support for There Goes the Neighborhood has been provided by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the New York Community Trust, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And one more thing. We want to know, how has race played a role in where you live or affected your ability to sign a lease or to get a mortgage? Call and tell us at 1-646-783-9692 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com.